going to be in Exodus 20, uh, verses 1 through 3. It's a very short passage. It'll be on the screen as well. And it simply reads, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You may be seated. All right. So before we get into this first commandment in particular, you shall have no other gods before me, I want to take a step back and I want to talk for a moment about the idea of commandments as a whole, this idea that we receive law from God. Because a lot of times when we think about law or rules or commands or instructions, they're not necessarily things that evoke immediately a positive response in our lives. And I was thinking about how this works in my life, like where in my life do I really interact and engage with law and rules? And one of the things that immediately came to mind is that each week, most days, I commute about an hour each way to work, to and from work. And thank you for feeling my pain. I heard some of those sighs. <laughs> um, and I don't always drive at, exact, at the exact same time, but very often I'm driving home when the carpool lane is just about to end. So we're talking about law, we're talking about rules here. So I have a confession to make, okay? I'm driving home, it's 6.55, carpool lane ends at 7. And I have one eye on my clock, on my dashboard, and in my mind I'm thinking, how close does it need to be to 7 o'clock before I could really slide into that other lane and no policeman is going to stop me. And even if they did, I'd have some reasonable justification for being there. Okay, 6.55, I'm in the left-hand lane right next to the carpool lane. One eye is on the clock. That's what I'm thinking. The other eye, of course, is on the carpool lane. I'm seeing cars go by. Every time a car goes by, there's an individual driver. They don't have that sticker they're not a Tesla, they're not a Leaf. I see them go by, and it brings out two reactions in me. First reaction is, look at that person. How dare they disrespect me, disrespect all the other people who are following the carpool laws, patiently waiting in this lane, and look at them just driving by, disrespecting all of us. Second reaction exact same time. That person's getting away with it. Maybe I could get away with it too. Okay? One eye on the clock. 656, 657, 658. So gotta be honest. Usually, it's somewhere around 6.58 that I'm like, now it's just a rounding error, okay? It's close <laughs> enough. And usually around that time, I slide into the carpool lane. I got to admit, there's a thrill of moving a little faster than traffic, you know, ha-ha. And I'm just trying to get home to be with my family a little bit faster. Okay. 
So this is a confession. This is how I interact with law on a daily basis, at least as it concerns the California Vehicle Code. Okay? And these are the emotions that it brings to mind. When I'm following the rules, and I resent people that seem to be getting away with other stuff. Okay? If I'm kind of tiptoeing on the other side of the line, then I'm rationalizing and thinking about how I'm not really hurting anyone and I just didn't want to miss out on these arbitrary rules that were keeping me from something good. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm sure that I probably offended someone here who always keeps the carpool lane laws. And I'm ready to apologize. Um, but let the person who is without sin cast the first stone, right? <laughs> so... You never speed. You always stop for right-hand turns. You've never done an illegal U-turn because it was just convenient. I promise you, come and find me afterwards. I will apologize to you directly. I am sorry. Okay? But for all the rest of you, and I saw everyone who was laughing, you get, you get my pain. You know where I'm coming from. All right. This is the love-hate relationship we have with the law, right? We don't look forward to extra laws in our life. When your boss comes to you at work and says, we have a meeting in 10 minutes in the conference room, we're gonna go over some new HR policy, you're not like, yeah, looking forward to that meeting, right? And every year, you're not looking forward to learning about all the new tax law and regulations that the IRS has for you. That's not what makes you excited. I was at the library yesterday, and I came across um, this book. So this is the Ernst & Young Tax Guide for 2016. It's uh, over a thousand pages, and it doesn't, you know, it's not even the law itself. It's just a book to help you get through the law. Um, and actually, in the same section as this book, I found the California Vehicle Code, which evidently after this message, I should probably review. But the point is, when we see books like this, it evokes a particular reaction. And we're not necessarily looking to dive into these books and to peruse them and examine them and engage with them. And the problem is, we have, when we see these books through the lens of the law, it evokes a particular reaction. And if we bring that same lens of viewing law to this book, to scripture, then we're going to miss out on something critical. These books, there's no heart behind these books. Okay? The IRS doesn't have a heart that's beating for you that's being expressed through the law. The California Vehicle Code doesn't have a heart that's beating for you that's being expressed through the vehicular code. But scripture is the expression of God's heart that beats with love for each one of us. And the danger is, you know, we might revere this book, we might respect this book in different ways than those books, but if we look at it fundamentally through the same lens, like it's just a bunch of rules and I'm not really that excited to read it, then we're going to miss out on being able to hear from God and to 
hear his words of life about how to live in a way that, that, that we were designed for and made for. All right, so that's the context that I want to use as we approach looking at the Ten Commandments. We're setting up the entire series. And, as, and so um, we're going we're gonna to start because, because this passage is also very aware of that context, right? It actually leads us into it in a way that reveals God's heart. And so that starts with um, the, the second verse in here, Exodus 20, verse 2, which simply says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, I want us to notice something. That's a statement, okay? This is a statement that comes before any of the commands. It's a statement that comes before any of the thou shalt nots, any of the rules. Before any of the commandments are given, God says, I am the Lord your God. And God didn't say, I am the Lord the God. He said, your God. Your is a word that connotes relationship. When I introduce my wife, I don't say, this is Mimi, a wife. I say, this is Mimi, my wife. I belong to her. She belongs to me. We are committed in relationship. If you see me with my daughters, Lily and Serena, I don't say, yes, uh, these are two uh, minor dependent children that show up on my tax return. I say, these are my girls. I am their father. They belong to me. I belong to them. We are a family together. And here in this passage, before God gives any rules, he says, I am the Lord, your God. You belong to me. I belong to you. We have a relationship that comes before any rules. And it's a present relationship, right? God doesn't say, I will be your God if, if you're good enough, if you follow my commands, if you listen to what I say, if you clean up your life. He starts this verse by saying, I am your God right now, already, before you've done anything. And the reason why he's able to say this, to launch into the Ten Commandments in this way, is found in the second part of this verse where he says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, many of us know some form of this story. We've either read the book, um, we've watched the movie, some of us have watched the 1950s version, Charlton Heston fans, some of us may be more familiar with the 1990s version, uh, you're into, you know, DreamWorks, and maybe you're Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston fans, you still, you know, you can hear the soundtrack running in your head, uh, maybe some of you are, you know, Christian Bale fans, you saw the movie two years ago, it's all good, all right? The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh is oppressing them. God sees their suffering, and he chooses Moses to set them free. Now, Pharaoh is the one who has to decide to let them go. Egypt is the, um, the premier civilization in the world at that time. All power and authority for Egypt rests in the Pharaoh's hands. And in order to get Pharaoh to let them go, there's a series of plagues. And the last plague is the death of every firstborn son in Egypt. 
And it's a severe form of God's judgment. And in many ways, it's a response because Pharaoh has been killing the sons of the Israelites all through the period. And this judgment is essentially the cruelty of Pharaoh redirected back at his own people. And the only reason the Israelites are spared is that God has given them kind of a unique instruction in the midst of it. It's actually the first thing that God tells the entire nation to do. He tells it through Moses and Aaron, and he says it's not a moral command. It's not like you got to sacrifice something huge in order to prove that you're worthy. The command that he gives them is basically just to have a meal, have dinner. He says, pick a lamb, get ready to have dinner. When you kill the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorposts of your house, put it above your house. That's what I want you to do. Doesn't make a lot of sense necessarily. There's hard to see the moral value in it, but I want you to do it. And here's the point. I want you to do it simply because you trust me. You trust me. We're starting the relationship. And when the plague comes that strikes the firstborn, the judgment of God passes over the Israelite homes because of the blood that is on the doors and over the doors, and they're spared. That's why it's called Passover. And that's, this is why this is part of God freeing the Jews from slavery. This is why the Jewish people continue to celebrate Passover year after year to this day. It's this last terrible plague that convinces Pharaoh to release the Israelites. And there's an interesting bit of nuance here. Um, Pharaoh was considered a firstborn in Egypt because Pharaoh was considered the son of the god Ra. And in the pantheon of Egyptian deities, the god Ra was a major god. He was the creator of the heavens and the earth and all people. He ruled over, you know, the skies and the land and the underworld. He was a big deal. And Pharaoh was his firstborn son. That was the claim. And scholars suggest that the reason why Pharaoh, when he knew that this plague was happening and all firstborn sons were being struck down. The reason why that caused him to let the people go was because he was scared of his own life, because he knew that he was considered a firstborn. And it was through these plagues, it was through the miraculous hand of God, the parting of the sea, bringing the Israelites through on dry ground. This is how God saved the people, miracle after miracle after miracle. And now, having experienced all of that, having lived through it, three months later, they're here at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they're about to receive God's law. So here's the lesson for us. It's relationship that allows us to receive God's law the right way. It's relationship. It's a relationship that's built on trust, not on moral goodness. It's not like the Israelites cleaned their act up and got themselves, you know, looking good or made the right sacrifices or decisions in order to win God's favor. God desires relationship with us. He initiated with the people. The relationship started based on trust. It was sealed based on God saving the people and being their rescuer. That was what the relationship was based on. That's what we see here 
in Exodus. And because of that relationship, because of that experience, the Israelites were now ready to receive God's law, the Ten Commandments. Here in Exodus 20, they're, they're before God and they know without a shadow of a doubt that God is the one who has saved them and redeemed them, brought them out of a situation that they could never have escaped on their own, and he's brought them into his family, called them by his name. He's told them, I am yours and you are mine. So what about for us? What does that mean for us? So the important thing for us to recognize is that this story in Exodus isn't just Israel's story. It's our story as well. The problem was slavery. The solution was God. That was true for them. It's also true for us. The problem is always slavery. The solution is always God. And God intends for us to experience him as our savior, as our rescuer, in the same way that the Israelites experienced him as their rescuer and savior and deliverer in the book of Exodus. And actually for us, we have a way of experiencing God as our deliverer. And we know that the lengths that he will go to save us in a way that the people in the book of Exodus wouldn't have even begun to imagine. You see, we don't just have these pages in scripture to refer back to of God being a saving God and the Passover as it's recorded, but we have something that's even greater than the Passover. We actually have something that the Passover was pointing to. And this is where we see the incredible unity of Scripture, the unity of the Bible. Okay, so remember when I said that Pharaoh was considered the firstborn son of the Egyptian god Ra. And when Pharaoh didn't die that night, it was as if God was saying, I know you think that you are the son of God, but I am God and you are not my son. I have a firstborn son. He is not a dictator. He is a deliverer. And his name is Jesus. And God knew in his time that it would be Jesus who would die on a cross to forgive the sins of the world and to set people free. It was Jesus who would, because of his death and his resurrection, who would open up the gates of relationship with God for all people. And that's why the New Testament in John calls Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It's Jesus who is the true Passover Lamb whose blood on the doorposts of our lives, on our sides above us, it's his blood that allows God's judgment to pass over us because, because of what Jesus has done, all of our sins have been forgiven. It's covered over all the ways that we bring harm to ourselves, that we bring harm to others, of all the ways that we've fallen short, of all the ways that we've been broken. It's Jesus who is our Savior and our Deliverer. But just like the Israelites, we can't just know this in our heads. You know, some of us know that, yeah, this is what the gospel story is all about. This is the essence and the core of the Christian faith. But it's not enough 
to just know it in theory. Like the Israelites, we need to experience it in our lives. We need to experience the saving power of God in the ugly, painful, broken, real places of our lives. And I know that these stories exist in this place. The stories might be slightly different for each one of us, but they have the same core because the problem is slavery and the solution is always God and it is God who desires to set us free. So for most of us, we aren't bound by real chains. We, weren't, we aren't actual slaves like the people in Israel were slaves under Egypt. But there are real forms of bondage and slavery that are at work in our lives, and it is God's power that sets us free. That is designed to be our real experience of who God is. So for someone here, it's the story of being bound by an addiction that is totally running and ruling your life, and that you have no power of escaping that addiction except for the power and love of God that broke through and broke those chains and set you free. Or maybe it's the story of an accident where you nearly died or you look back on something and you really could have or should have been killed. But instead of the chains of an untimely death, God set you free to, to have more years to live the life that he's called you to live. Maybe it's the story of healing from sickness. Or maybe it's the story of when you were overwhelmed with grief or sorrow. And God broke through the chains of those suffering to heal you, to give you hope and a future. Maybe it's the story just of a sense of emptiness in your life, of not having meaning or purpose. And in that despair, God broke those chains. And he rescued you. And you knew that he saw you, that he created you for a purpose. And he's freed you to live in the plan that he has for your life. You know, really the story doesn't even have to be that dramatic. For some people here, your story is just that God placed you in a family that loved and honored God, and that you grew up with parents that actually reflected the heart of God. And because they genuinely reflected the heart of God with all of their strengths and weaknesses, flaws and imperfections, you knew in your heart what it meant to be loved by God for who you are. And you knew all the things that God had shielded you and protected you from. And that's your story of knowing that you are saved by God. <clears throat> this is part of my story as well and what's allowed me to follow God and say yes to God and the things that he's eventually led me to. My story is that I grew up in a family where performance was a big deal. I always knew that my parents loved me, but somehow I always felt an incredible pressure to be a good kid, to have a squeaky clean image, to control how people saw me and thought about me. And I was able to control that in a lot of ways through performance and through how I acted and what I said. But in my adolescence and in secret and when no one was around, 
I started to develop these hidden and habitual sins that, um, that, I, that I just started to struggle with, things around sexual fantasy and pornography. And they brought this huge burden of shame and guilt in my life because I knew, I just knew I couldn't let anyone else know. And I desperately wanted to be free of them, but they made me keep everyone at arm's length, even my friends. I just knew that if people saw into me and really knew me and knew what I was really like, they would certainly reject me and turn away from me. And it kept me in chains. So afraid of not being good enough. And so these chains of shame and guilt and compulsion to habitual sins were ones that I desperately wanted to be free from I tried over and over again, but I didn't have it in me to find a way out. The problem is always slavery. The solution is always gone. And it was in a particular season of my life, the summer after my sophomore year, that God broke through and intervened in my life in a way that I can't fully explain or describe. It was in a season um, of a lot of prayer. It was in a season after a few years of being in a lot of study of scripture, of um, gradually getting to know, uh, having a community around me and learning what that meant and how to start to become a little bit more transparent with people. And then suddenly in one summer, God broke through in my life in a way that his grace became real, his power became real, his love for me and his acceptance became real. And there was a transformation in my life, a setting free, a victory over compulsions and hidden behaviors, a sense of freedom and joy that I had never experienced before and I knew came only from God. Now, every person's experience is going to be a little different, but just like the Israelites, we are intended to experience the saving power, the rescuing power, the delivering power of God in our lives. That's designed to be part of our story. And that's what's designed to allow us to come to a place where we're ready to hear from God about what God has for us. You know, certainly it's the way that we're designed to be, you know, to engage with the Ten Commandments, but it's really designed for for us to be prepared to hear anything that God has to say for us. You know, Jesus has things that he calls us to in the New Testament that are even, that can feel even more challenging than the Ten Commandments. To seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, to love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourself, to take up our cross and follow him. And the only way that we are going to be able to receive those commandments with joy and to respond with joyful obedience is if we know that God is the one who has brought us out of slavery. He is the one who has set us free. So we've looked at our first point, that Relationship always comes before rules, and the rules are always designed to come after an experience of knowing that God is the one who has saved us and redeemed us. But it might bring us to a question, well, if we have that kind of relationship with God, why do there have to be rules at all, right? Turn to your neighbor and say, why do there have to be rules at all? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. All right. <clears throat> The best way to understand why God gives us 
law, why God gives us rules, is that his commands to us come out of his heart for us as a father. God gives us rules and commands and guidelines because he loves us as a father and he desires what is good and life-giving and joyful for our lives, right? And some of us have a hard time accepting this because we've never really experienced this in any real measure. So we didn't see this in our parents. Uh, maybe a lot of the rules that we got were kind of arbitrary or they maybe were abusive or we could tell that they were only for you know, someone else's benefit, but they certainly weren't for us. Or maybe we even grew up in an environment where our parents were physically or emotionally absent. And so we grew up in an environment without rules and there was chaos, but we've never experienced what it actually means to be in an environment where boundaries and guidelines can be healthy and life-giving things. But I think in our hearts, we know that that's what we really need. Even in the imperfect pictures of fatherhood that we see in this world, we see it enough that the heart of a father can give rules for, with the best interest of children in mind. And I actually tested this with my girls. <laughs> As I was preparing, I actually stopped, I cornered them, and I was like, you know, all the rules that daddy gives you, the rules like, you got to wake up in the morning to get ready for school. When you got to go to bed, you got to do your homework, you got to clean. When I tell you all those things, why do I do it? They looked at each other. They said, because you want us to be healthy and you want us to have happy lives. And then I totally gave them a leading question. I said, it's and it's because I love you, right? And they said, yes, daddy, it's because I, you love us. And I thought, if I can get them, they're, not, they're 10 and 7 right now, if I can get them to hold on to this through their teenage years, <laughs> I will celebrate. All right. <clears throat> but that's what we see in this passage. God, God gives us all commands, including these 10 commandments, with the heart of a father. And then we come to this first commandment. So how do we understand this first commandment? Exodus 23. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 3. And what we notice about this first commandment is that it's always going to be the first commandment. You know, whether it's for the Israelites, whether it's for us, whenever we're brought into relationship with God, the first commandment that he's always going to give us is you shall have no other gods before me. And even after all that context, even after everything that we've experienced, it's not always easy for us to digest this commandment. You know, I think for a lot of us, inside this command, you shall have no other gods before me, we hear some echoes of jealousy. And jealousy is a hard emotion for us to deal with. Primarily in our experience, it may bring to mind kind of ex-boyfriends, ex-girlfriends, other people in our lives that were far too controlling. And in some cases, your jealousy, most of the time in our experience, in our world, it's a negative emotion and it can lead to some incredibly destructive patterns of behavior. But surprisingly, jealousy is one, is an emotion that is ascribed to God in Scripture all through scripture. And so there must be a different side to jealousy, a holy jealousy that would allow God to say that the very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. 
And so as I was wrestling with this, kind of thinking about it, it actually brought back to mind the course of my relationship with my wife, Mimi. So there was a time before Mimi and I were dating, we were friends, just friends. And the thing that motivated me to think, uh, maybe I want something more, was because one of the other people that we knew started to become interested in Mimi, asked her out, they started getting together. And the emotion that I felt in my heart was jealousy. Now, I want to be totally honest here. This was not holy jealousy. <laughs> because there was nothing, there was no relationship between Mimi and I that would have justified that response where she needed, where, where my jealousy would have applied to her at all, where she needed to be concerned with that. And it wasn't a holy jealousy because for me, being totally honest, I wasn't really thinking about, well, what's going to be best for Mimi in the long term? <laughs> I was just thinking about, I don't want to miss out on a good thing. And thankfully, Mimi was also interested in me. You know, we started to talk. Eventually, that led to dating. But if she had preferred that other guy, that would have been totally her right. And if she had said no to me, I would have had to let go of my jealousy. Because if I had held on to it and there was no basis for that in our relationship, the only thing that that could have led to is really negative patterns of thinking, destructive actions, and behavior. And that's a, what we see a lot with jealousy in this world. But let's fast forward to now, now that Mimi and I are married. Now we've made vows to each other, right? For better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, forsaking all others. We've made these vows and commitments to each other, and we've built a life together based on these vows. So now, if inside of our relationship, we have a set of rules where, you know, for me, there are no other women that will come before my wife. And for her, that there are no other men that will come before me. That's no longer inappropriate. Now that is totally appropriate because what is precious and what brings power to our relationship is precisely its exclusivity and the commitments that we have made to each other. So now if there are friends or coworkers or a neighbor or whatever and things start to get a little sketchy, it would be totally right and appropriate for us to speak up into each other's lives and to say, you know, hey, I see something and I want to call it out because we have made vows and commitments to one another. And now if that motivation of jealousy to say, look, there's something that's making me feel uncomfortable, if that causes me to speak out, that is a holy jealousy because I am protecting something that is precious, that is built on commitment, and it's not just out of self-interest, it's out of mutual interest. It's to say we're protecting each other and our relationship and our daughters and all that we've built our lives together on because of our vows together. 
And that's what we see in this passage, in Exodus 20, verse 3. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, the heart of God that's being expressed is the heart of a bridegroom, the heart of a spouse, the heart of a lover inside of an intimate covenantal relationship where God has said, I have committed that you are my people and I have saved you, so I am your God and I am the only God. I've brought you out of slavery. I've committed myself totally to you. And, and so, I, well, I, so I give you this command to have no other gods before me because why would you go and pursue something else that is just going to bring you back into slavery? Right? If we give our heart to money, if we give our heart to relationships, if we give our heart to power or success, if we give our heart even to our family or our kids or to anything else and we put it above God, God says that's going to tear our relationship apart because none of those things can save you like I've saved you. None of those things will set you free like I have set you free. None of those things are going to be there all through time and eternity, like I will be there for you. God says, if you give your heart to anything else, if you have any other God before me, it will become your master and you will become a slave again. And that's why God says, have no other gods before me. So if we settle this in our hearts, if we settle this in our lives, it actually, you know, we're looking at it, this introduction to the Ten Commandments, it actually makes the rest of the Ten Commandments almost easy. Because if we're willing to trust God and to have no other gods before him, if we delight in that relationship and we trust him and we lean into that relationship and we say that you are the center of our lives, then anything that God is instructing us to do, anything that God is calling us to do or commanding us to do, we'll be able to receive it knowing that God's heart for us is the heart of love. It's the heart of a lover. It's the heart of a father. It's the heart of a God who has saved us and has loved us with an everlasting love, and he will never, ever leave us or forsake us. And we're able to respond to his commandments in the way that he wants us to respond, which is joyful obedience. Because we know, we've experienced it, it's been our story that his love for us has brought us into relationship. So as I close, I just wanna focus on two things, two quick things. The first is, there are some people here today, some of us here today, and we've never had that experience of knowing that God is our Savior and our Rescuer, our real Savior and Rescuer in the things of our life today. And you may know, like you may have either been brought up or you may know, well, yeah, that's the message of the gospel. Yeah, that's the message of Christianity. But what I want to encourage you is if you've never experienced it for yourself, that God knows you and cares about you and wants to save you and intervene in your life and transform you and bring you into freedom, I want you to 
take a step back and not worry about kind of perfectly fulfilling all the commands or living up to what you think God wants for you or um, kind of cleaning your life up so that you can gain God's favor. Put all of that aside and bring to God the real stuff of your life, the place of deepest pain, the place of deepest struggle, your hardest questions. Bring that to God and let God reveal himself to you as your Savior as your rescuer, as the one who wants to enfold you in his arms in relationship. Because there is nothing that is going to make the difference in allowing you to follow God with joy that unless you have that experience. And then the second thing that I want to encourage is that there's some of us here who have had that experience. That is part of our story. You know, when I gave that list of ways that that could look in our lives, something came to your mind where there was something that happened in your life where you know that was God. That was God coming in and showing me in the way that only God could that he loves me and cares for me and has brought me into his family. But as we've looked at this commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, there may have been something that got stirred up in you that said, you know what? There are some other things that are going on in my life now that are starting to crowd God out, that are starting to take precedence, that are starting to compete with him. And I want to encourage you not to stuff that down. You know, these commandments aren't things that are designed to make us hide and pretend that they don't exist. They're designed to start a dialogue with God where we can be honest with him and to say, I, 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 need, to, I need to take this seriously. And what I would challenge you to do is to spend some time remembering what God has done. This is why the Jewish people were called to celebrate the Passover year after year. In our lives, we need to remember the times that God broke through in our lives and showed us the full extent of his love. And then we need to use that to renew our commitment to have no other gods before him, to say, yes, I trust you. Yes, I love you. Yes, I believe that you have my good. Yes, I believe that you are the only God that is going to be faithful now and faithful always in the future. And so just really practically, if you want to respond today, I want to encourage you. On your connection card, there's a spot. If you're in that place of wrestling, you've never, you're not sure you've had that experience. Or maybe you realize that you've had that, you know, that you want to commit today. Or you want to talk with someone about what that would look like to, to learn more about how, how Jesus comes into a life and shows himself as a savior. There are boxes to be able to mark that. And then, um, and then if, if you just want to take the next step in walking with God today, you, you want to take the next step in holding on um, and and taking that step forward with this commandment, there, I, I will have no other gods before you. I want to just encourage you to write in that message response just to say, I'm ready for more. I'm ready to hear more from you, God. I'm, I'm ready to listen. And the things I hear you saying to me, I'm going to take the next step of joyful obedience. Praise God. Thank you.